Well, I am nearing the end of the series that I have been in over the past several months. I can see the lighthouse in the distance. And how many of you know when you see the lighthouse, you know you're coming into the shore. I am bringing the ship into the shore. I will minister today a message and then perhaps one more in this series, and then I will anchor it. The name of this series is Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. If there has ever been a series that I've ever ministered in my life, this one has meant so much to me. Because in my travels, in my walk, in my getting around, I have noticed that so many people, believers, want to keep adding to Jesus' finished work. Friends, you have to stop and ask yourself the question, is it finished? Did Jesus finish the work on the cross? If not, then he has to go back. Jesus finished the work on the cross, friends. It is finished. One of the things that I have discovered throughout life is that man is constantly being indoctrinated to add to what he already has, especially in the spiritual sense. His appetite is insatiable. A man can have 500 lures in his tackle box, but guess what? He wants another one. A woman can have a hundred pair of shoes in her closet, and guess what? <laughs> she wants another pair of shoes. Solomon had 699 wives, and guess what? He wanted another one, and he got her. Solomon had 299 concubines, and guess what? He wanted another one, and he got her. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I think you're already aware of, and that is that social media and television have whetted our appetites. They've awakened our appetites, in a sense, with their own set of lures. On a spiritual level now, on a spiritual level, listen to me carefully. Well-meaning, I want you to underscore those words in your heart this morning, well-meaning preachers and teachers have programmed us from a child with a mindset that what Jesus did for us on the cross was insufficient to make us perfect forever by one sacrifice. Now, they won't come out and they will not say that with their own tongue, but somehow they do phrase it in many ways, but they teach that there's some sort of ejection seat, that you can be ejected out of God, removed out from underneath the foundation, removed out from underneath the canopy of His grace. Their eject button is always labeled the same way it is called sin. That's what they say. They say sin will take you out of the hands of God. Sin will take you out of the grace of God. Friends, it is not true. May I remind us this morning that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And in Christ, there are no eject buttons and there are no eject seats in Him, right? Adding water to an expensive bottle of perfume will increase its volume, but it does nothing to enhance its fragrance. Would you agree with that? The only thing that doesn't get diluted with water is water. But if you add water to anything else, I don't care what it is, Coca-Cola, 7-Up, gasoline, it doesn't matter what it is. If you add water to anything, it dilutes the strength. It makes it less effective. It renders it less effective. 
And in the same manner, listen to me now, in the same manner, adding our religious contributions to Jesus' finished work on the cross in an effort to either maintain or somehow retain our salvation renders grace less effective in that person's life and it dilutes the fragrance of the Father's unconditional love. What did I just say? I say if you feel like you've got to add something to what God has already given you, then that means you don't see it for the priceless gift that it is because you are trying to add to his gift. So today it's my great privilege to add the ninth message to this series as I minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. Come on. (laughs) He's the guarantor of a better covenant. What I want us to see through the message today is this. There is one covenant. It's the new covenant. And Jesus is our guarantor through oath-binding promises. Now, I want to ask you a question. How would you define covenant? I want you just to take just a second in your heart, in your heart of hearts, and I want you to define covenant. You see, your definition of covenant comes from your belief system. If you want to know what's in a man's heart, just listen to his words. This is his belief system that is coming out. I don't care what the subject is. Just listen to the words that are coming out of the man's mouth, and it will determine his belief system. How you define covenant tells me about your belief system, and it's the way you will live out your Christian life. So if you see covenant merely as fire insurance, then you will live a life that has minimal intimacy with the Father. Do you know how many Christians are just kind of bored? They're just kind of stagnant in their Christian walk because there's no intimacy. They are not intimate with the Father and that stems from their belief system, what they believe about God, what they believe about the new covenant that they're under. Why? Why won't they have intimacy? Because their covenant is rooted in fear. And in fear, you cannot experience love. You cannot experience the gracious, unconditional, tender heart of God if you're always afraid. You're too busy watching for stuff. You're too busy being concerned about yourself. If you see covenant as a 50-50 partnership with God, you know, God does his part, and then I do my part, then you will have overlooked the incomparable riches of the Father's gracious heart. Friends, it is Him. We're not just along for the ride. We're not just in the back seat. We are on Daddy's lap. Whether He's sitting in the chair in the living room or driving down the road, I'm telling you, I can be intimate with Him anywhere I'm at. I can be mowing grass and be intimate with the Father. I can be washing a car and be intimate with the Father. I can be in gridlock traffic and still be intimate with the Father. Why? Because I've got a glimpse of His goodness. I've got a glimpse of His glory. I've caught the revelation and the scent from this gospel of grace that's adhered to my spirit. And because of that revelation, because of that awareness, I can go, Tabby! I'm not always fighting stuff. I'm resting in your absolute goodness and grace. 
So did you define covenant in your heart? What did you come up with? Covenant is the establishing or the joining together of a relationship between two or more parties. Now, I want you to underscore, highlight, if you will, that word relationship. That's what covenant is. Covenant is relationship. Covenant is more than just a thing. It's not just a commodity. Covenant is a relationship. It's the gospel, friends. My hope is not built on anything less than Christ's blood and his righteousness. So covenant is the establishing or joining together of a relationship between two or more parties, a relationship that was founded upon oath-binding promises. Let me tell you something. Without promises, there is no covenant. That's what a covenant means, a relationship that has been established upon promises. God has made promises to his children, hasn't he? Within the new covenant, he's made many promises. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. There's a scripture for that. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13. He has promised to take our sins away once for all. That's Hebrews chapter 10. He has promised to never condemn us. That's Romans chapter 8. He has promised to give us eternal life. His children have eternal life. That's John chapter 3. He has promised that the new covenant will operate by grace through faith. That is Ephesians chapter 2. The Father has promised hope in hopelessness. He has promised help in helplessness. He has promised light when we're walking through darkness. He has promised peace in the midst of chaos. Our Father has promised that our names, come on, will never, ever be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. That is something to cheer about. Our Father has promised our names can never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. All of these promises, guess what? They're accessed by grace, the undiluted gospel, by faith. I want you to embrace the promises of the Bible. They are the promises under the new covenant. Now, once a covenant is ratified, everything that each party possesses belongs to the other person. Do you know that? It's true. You see, Valerie and I, 21 plus years ago, stood in front of each other like this, and I said, I do, and she said, I do. And when I said, I do, everything she had became mine, <laughs> and everything I had became hers. That's covenant for you, friends. This is covenant. And the Father said, everything I have belongs to you. It's the normal that we pray, we believe, we put our trust in the Father, and the Father delivers. He's not a slot machine where you just pull a handle and out pops whatever you're praying for and asking for. No, he's not like that, friends. Remember, this is about relationship. This is about covenant. This is about sitting on daddy's lap. This is about knowing who you are and allowing daddy to work his promises into every fabric of your being. Beautiful. So once the covenant is ratified, everything that each other possesses all becomes one. Now, imagine with me for a moment. Remember, Valerie and I are one, right? 
Now imagine with me for a moment that Valerie has an off day, okay? There's many days like that. But imagine she has an off day and she decides to go on a $10,000 shopping spree. <laughs> Would I agree with her decision? Uh, probably not. But does she have the right? Come on, now does she have the right? Yes. You see, what I possess is hers, and what she possesses is mine. And at the end of the shopping spree, she'll have all the bling bling, she'll have all the jewelry, she'll have all the clothes, she'll have all the jewelry, she'll have all the shoes, and I will have the receipts, and we will still be in covenant with one another. Isn't that simple to see? Now I'm going somewhere, friends. Now listen to me carefully. There are times when we go on a shopping spree of our feelings and emotions. Grabbing hold of things that are costly and needless. Taking possession of things that have no guarantee. Times when we put things in the shopping cart of our mind, we haven't learned yet that grace is the one. The scriptures tell us in Titus that it is grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Times when we peruse the clothing rack of old covenant ideology in search for something that will make us look better. You know what I'm saying? People want to dress themselves up with all their do's and their don'ts. That is the clothing rack, friends, of the old covenant ideology, friends. I'm talking about shopping sprees that are carefree, they're extravagant, they're excessive. Now I want to ask you a question. Is that using wisdom? No, that's not using wisdom. Of course not. You see, wisdom tells us a diamond ring is to be worn on the finger and not swallowed. Would you agree with that? That's where it goes. So if a person swallows a diamond ring, even though they are technically still wearing it, they are not using that ring for what it was purposed for, what it was created for, what it was designed to do. Likewise, many believers live below the threshold of complete rest because they have swallowed the weights of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation and they don't know how to regurgitate it. They don't know how to get rid of it. And they carry it sometimes for a lifetime. They carry guilt. They carry shame. They carry all of this baggage of condemnation. Friends, we were not made we were not made under this new covenant to swallow guilt and shame and fear and condemnation or to shop from the clothing rack of the old covenant. In doing so, we have the pleasure for a season, as the scripture says, and we may gather goods for a lifetime, but the receipts, listen to me carefully, will ultimately fall into daddy's hands and we will still be in covenant with him. That covenant is binding. That covenant is stacked with promises. You couldn't climb your way to the top of all his promises, friends. Not in a lifetime. You see, friends, Jesus' blood purchased us from the penalty of sin. Jesus' blood purchased us from the guilt of emotional shopping sprees. Jesus' blood purchased us from the foolishness of swallowing diamond rings and from the oppression of the law. And this purchase was underwritten with these words. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant.
In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we find these words through the New Life version of the Bible. Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. Come on. Now, we need to park there for just a moment, okay? Go ahead and turn your engine right off, right? Look at those words. Come on, grab a hold of these. So the next time the enemy starts playing with your mind, you can go back to these words, and he starts beating you up with condemnation, fear, shame, and guilt. You can go back to these words here, and it says there, Christ, Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. What did we find in the law? 613 commandments, 365 thou shalt not, and 248 thou shalt better do these things. Christ's blood made us free from performing to please God. Now, friends, I am like a crazy man sharing Jesus. I'm like a crazy man ministering God everywhere I go. But I'm not doing it because I feel like I have to. I do it because I'm in relationship with Him. I do this because I'm in covenant with Him. I do this because it's His heart. And I've listened to His heart enough because I've been up next to it enough. And I know what His heart sounds like. His heart has an unforced rhythm. It's a beautiful rhythm. It's a rhythm of rest that you get to listen to Papa's heart and then speak His heart into other people and draw them, draw them out of the climate that they have lived in sometimes for a lifetime. Beautiful. Friends, you will never learn Papa's heart from across the room. You've got to get on Daddy's lap. And how you understand this covenant will determine if you sit on his lap or you stand on the other side of the room. Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. In that way, look at these words, the law could not punish us. Come on. Come on. Do you know how many believers are out there getting beat up by the law because they feel like they're under the law because they've not heard the true gospel? That's why the Apostle Paul would begin this chapter by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know what he was saying when he said that? He was saying, you sensual Galatians, you're operating by feelings and emotions. I came here on my last missionary journey and I told you when I was here that it was Christ plus nothing equals everything. And then the Judaizers came when I was gone and they said, hey, come on, yeah, Christ is fine. Christ is fine, but you still need to get circumcised. No, Apostle Paul said, no. Oh, you still need to obey Moses' law. No, not for salvation. Do it so that your life doesn't fall apart. Yes, but not for salvation, friends. Not to be closer to the Father. Do it because it's the right thing to do. In that way, the law could not punish us. Am I in the Bible? Am I in the Word? I'm in the Word, friends. If I color outside of the Word, you let me know, okay? These are not my words. These are the Apostle Paul's. And guess what? I've said it before. Galatians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The new covenant was laid upon the Apostle Paul's revelation of grace. In that way, the law could not punish us. Look at this. Christ did this by carrying the load. 
Friends, the load was more than a 150-pound cross. The load was what you were carrying and what the world was carrying. That's the load. It was the sin of humanity. He was carrying that load. And by being punished instead of us, he died in our place. He was punished in our place. Do you see why I love him like I do? He was punished in my place. I pray that I never find myself in a situation where it's my wife and I or someone I love, one of you, and someone says it's your life or their life. I can tell you without equivocation, there would be no time to just pray about this. No. I would say you take me, but you let them go. But this is Christ! He's dying for ugly, vile, filthy men. What love! What beauty Christ has for us! In that way, the law could not punish us. Christ did this by carrying the load and by being punished instead of us. Look at these words. It is written, anyone who hangs on a cross is hated and punished. True. They didn't nail their friends to the cross, friend. They nailed you to the cross because they hated you. You were in their way. I was talking with my three grandchildren last night. We were having a good old conversation. Wanting to know why is there so much evil in the world. And I said, the word says in the book of James, it asks that question. It says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? And I looked at them and I said, I'm so happy that the word didn't allow us just to fill in our own thoughts there. Right after that, it says, you want something, but you don't get it. That's what causes it. And there's evil in this world, yes, of course, but I'm telling you, love is a greater force. Faith is a greater force. Grace is a greater force, friends. Look at this now. Because of the price Christ Jesus paid, my mind does not even compute that. There's no calculator that's wide enough to hold enough numbers, friends. There's no bucket that's big enough to hold enough gallons. Because of the price Christ paid the good things that came to Abraham might come to the people who are not Jews. What is it that came to Abraham that hadn't yet come to the Jews or the Gentiles even? I'll tell you what it was. It was the guarantee of a better covenant. A covenant that was founded upon grace by faith. Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He simply believed God and it was credited in that moment like we're the same exact thing that we have today. You see, Abraham lived prior to Moses, right? So the law had not been instituted yet. So Abraham was under a covenant that was simply by grace through faith. That's what that word believe means. It means faith. Put your trust in something. And by putting our trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit He has promised. Christian brothers, let me show you what this means. Now here's what he says. He says, if two men agree to something 
and signed their names on a paper promising to stay true to what they agree, it cannot be changed. Does that make sense? I mean, if I go to my bank and I say, I want to buy a house, I'm going to sit down with a banker eventually, a loan specialist, and they're going to say, we're agreeing that you're going to give me $1,000 a month and I'm going to give you this loan. And we're both going to sign that document. Now, if I send in $100, I have some explaining to do, don't I? And how many months do you think I can get away with that before I lose that home? Not very many, right? So what he's saying here, he says, if two men agree to something and sign their names on a paper promising to stay true to what they agree, it cannot be changed. You say, Pastor Mark, Boy, I love everything about those scriptures. I do. I love that through Christ's blood, we have been set free from the law. I like that. I love that we can no longer be punished for our sins. I really love that one. I love that we receive the Holy Spirit by trusting in Christ. Oh, yes. But that 15th verse kind of bothers me. That one's a little fuzzy for me. That 15th verse tells me this. I'm reading it again. If two men agree to something, in other words, if two men enter into a covenant, that's what agreement means, entering into covenant, and, it uses that word, and stay true to what they agreed upon, then, and only then, if they stay true, then and only then, the covenant cannot be changed. So, that leads me to a question. What if one of the parties, in particular, if we're talking about God and us, the believer, does not stay true to the covenant, then what? Come on, you've got to ask that question, really? Because you know how fallible we can be at times, right? Does God hit the eject button? <laughs> no. Would the covenant be annulled? Absolutely not. Would the covenant be rendered invalid? Of course not. Will my unfaithfulness water down God's faithfulness? No. The Scriptures tell us that if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Come on. Come on. He remains faithful. Now, do I want to walk around faithless? No. That's a recipe for a loser of a life. No, I don't want to walk around that way. But if I do, he remains faithful. Friends, the word covenant is a word that grows up and out of the same root word meaning to cut. That's why you've heard this word, to cut covenant. How many of you have heard that before, to cut covenant? Now does the scripture make sense without the shedding of blood that means without the cutting of covenant, without the shedding of blood. That's how covenants were made. They sacrificed an animal. They cut their wrist or whatever it may be. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You'll be relieved to know that the new covenant, listen to me carefully now, was not cut between God and man. The new covenant was cut between God the Father and God the Son and neither God the Father nor God the Son will ever break their covenant of promise. Jesus truly is 
the guarantor of a better covenant. On the other hand, let's just go over here. Let's just go over here and play for a little while. On the other hand, if the new covenant would have been cut between God and man, then our covenantal promises would still stay intact, even during our most extravagantly wasteful shopping sprees of the mind, if you know what I mean. Did you know that the words prodigal son, now see, that sounds like a cool word, prodigal. Prodigal son, but do you know what it means? Prodigal means extravagantly wasteful. The prodigal son means the extravagantly wasteful son. And what do we remember about the extravagantly wasteful son? What do you remember about him? Well, you remember a lot of things about him. He has absolutely sabotaged his life, wrecked his life, been faithless. Now what? When he returned home, he was received by his father with hugs and kisses and warm embrace, lavished with unconditional love. Come on. Now Jesus is the one who's telling this story, friends. This is Christ. And where did he reach down all of a sudden and bring this story out of? Well, he was always about revealing the heart of the Father. When Jesus told this story to his disciples, was he drawing our attention to the sinful son? No, of course not. Was he drawing our attention to that bratty brother? It must have been them, that guy. No. Was he drawing our attention to the missing mother? You don't hear a thing about her. No. He was drawing our attention to his faithful father. He had to take you through that whole process of a man, a young man, dishonoring his father, going to a far country, blowing his money on riotous living and harlots and drinking like crazy, working for a farmer that had a pig pen, getting in with the pigs, and then coming to the revelation that I wasn't made for this. I've swallowed a diamond ring somehow. No, I wasn't made for this. So he picked himself up and he went back to his father and the father ran to him and greeted him, friends. It's a simple story in the Bible with a profoundly deep truth. This is how the father will receive you and me, us and we. This is what he does. Now, it couldn't have gotten any worse, friend. I don't know if I know a human being on earth that lived a more riotous life than that prodigal son. Come on. And Jesus is telling the story. And he's wanting us to see the goodness of his father. So beautiful. Jesus was letting us know that the covenant between the father and the son remains in force even when we swallow diamond rings, friends, even when we, like the prodigal son, hit our own eject button, and that's exactly what he did. Beam me out of here, and boom, gone. Covenant still in force. Even when we water down our own perfume, it doesn't change the fragrance that the Father smells us by. Hallelujah. Whether we have one pair of shoes, 
whether we have 500 lures or whether we have 700 wives and 300 concubines, it doesn't matter. It may wreck your life here on earth, but I'm telling you that covenant remains intact. I want to draw our attention back to the truth that Christ bought us with His blood and made us free from the law. In that way, the law cannot punish us because Christ was punished instead of us. Friends, under the new covenant, there is no eject button for our sinful actions and reckless shopping sprees. Because of that reality, because of that truth, you know what can happen? An immature believer might think, then why not live life on the edge? I've seen it. Why not slop hogs for a season? Why not live a reckless, careless life? Because believers are not compatible with a lifestyle as such. We're not compatible with that. It's not our nature. It's not who we are. We have our moments, the scriptures say, every man is going to stumble once in a while, but Christ picks us up. How about allowing grace to restrain you? How about allowing love to restrain you? A love that is gentle and kind. A love that is patient and persevering. How about allowing that to restrain you? That power, that force. I want to ask you a question. Think about this for a second now. If I were to give you a brand new Mercedes Benz. Come on, Felix. You've had enough. Co- <laughs> I've never met a, a man and his wife that have been given more gifts in my life than Pastor Felix and Fiona. I've never seen anybody in my life. You're a magnet for gifts, for sure. But imagine someone were to give you a brand new Mercedes-Benz. Now let me ask you a question. Would you park it in the pig pen or in the garage? Come on, I'm just being practical here this morning, okay? Where would you park it at? (laughs) The garage, right? Why? Because parking it in the pig pen is no way to treat such an extravagant gift. Besides, it will take on the stench of its environment. When I worked in Freeport, Illinois, about once every two or three months, we had a hog farmer that would come in. He liked to spend money, so we let him come into our store as a retail store. But I'm telling you, it took two days to get that smell out of there once he came in there. It wasn't just on his boots, friends. It was in the fabric of everything he wore. He lived right on a hog farm. We're not made. We're not made to live in the hog pen. We're not made for that. That's a good reason. But allow love to restrain you. Allow God's grace to restrain you. Salvation is what brings us into covenant with Christ. And think about this. It's an extravagant gift purchased by His blood. God lavishes us with outrageous loving kindnesses and graces. Why would we abuse such a gift? Friends, slapping hogs and living a reckless life are like swallowing a diamond ring. The ring will go to an environment that it was not designed for. It was not made for that. It was not destined for that. Diamond rings are not made for the stomach. They're made for the finger. Likewise, believers are not made for foolishness. We are made for Him. 
were made for him. You say, Pastor Mark, if there is no punishment from God for our sin and the reckless shopping spree of our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and actions, then what difference does it make? You see, friends, I'm on a topic this morning that has to be covered. It's so important because these questions are ricocheting in the minds and the hearts of believers. What difference would it make? That's a good question. There are many reasons, but let me give you a real practical one, okay? Friends, the spirit man, that is the part of you that a doctor can't locate. Come on, Miss Fiona, you went through medical school, didn't you? Did they ever show you where the spirit was located exactly in the human anatomy? No, it's, see, it's that portion of you. It's that life in you that you can't locate with a scalpel. The spirit man can never be destroyed, but our souls and our bodies can be used, abused, and always refused. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner on the ship Alexandria, and it had set sail for Rome. The scriptures tell us that before long, the ship was caught by the storm and swept out to the sea. Do you see that in your heart? Friends, I have been on the lake before in a small boat, and the waves are only barely white capping it. They're very small, but it's rocking that boat. And it's a little intimidating, to be honest with you. Because you look at it and you think, man, you're only like three inches from coming over. And once you start coming over, you're going to fill my boat full of water and you're going to take me to the bottom of the lake. But he's on a ship, the scriptures say, that is caught. It is swept by the storm out into the sea. In other words, it had more authority than the sails did. Caught, swept out to the sea. Would you like to guess how many believers get caught in habits that sweep them out to the sea? A lot of them. The storm that the Apostle Paul faced was so fierce that the ship couldn't face the wind, the Scriptures tell us. Therefore, the captain of the ship gave way to it, and they were swept along. That ship was caught by something known as the Eurachlodon. Ooh, that sounds like a big dinosaur, doesn't it? A Eurachlodon! That ship was caught by something known as the Eurachlodon, a cyclonic, tempestuous northeast wind that was blowing across the Mediterranean. Listen to me carefully. It was so abusive that even the Apostle Paul had given up all hope of being saved. But an angel... See, God knows what to do, man. God knows what to do when we're facing the storms of life. The scripture says, but an angel visited Paul one night and encouraged him. How? By reminding him of God's promises. I don't know of a better way to encourage yourself than to remind yourself of God's promises. What else do you have? Everything else is in your past. God is in your present and in your future. And then an angel came along, didn't spend a lot of time there, you know, didn't want to get seasick, and just started ministering to Paul, reminding him of God's promises and telling him, Paul, I know you're not going to like this, but you are going to stand as a prisoner in Rome. The next day, Paul stood up before his 
fellow prisoners and the crew of that ship and declared these words. Acts chapter 27, verses 20 through 22. For a number of days, neither the sun nor the stars were to be seen. And the storm continued to rage. Come on, friends. Storms are bigger than the outside stuff. People have storms that are raging in their souls, in their emotional realm, in their lives. Come on. You know them. You know you know them. Just listen to their words. And it doesn't take you very long to figure out you've got a cyclonic, tempestuous storm, maybe a Euroclodon in your emotions, but we come along with a word that we can speak into their heart, a word that is fit for that moment, listening to the Holy Spirit who we have a relationship with. For a number of days, neither the sun nor the stars were to be seen, and the storm continued to rage until, look at these words, until at last all hope of being saved vanished. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? It was Luke. Luke was on this ship too, friends. Luke remembers this situation. And he said, I even gave up hope. The apostle Paul gave up hope. That great man of faith. Because it was so cyclonic and so catastrophic. He said, we had all given up hope of being saved. It literally vanished. After they had gone a long time without food... Paul stood among his shipmates and said these words. He said, men, you should have listened to me when I told you way back there that it wasn't the season for sailing. You thought all we need is just a gentle breeze. I'm telling you by the Spirit, it's not the time for sailing. See, that's the beauty of the Spirit man speaking to you. He tells you things your calendar can't tell you. He tells you things the weatherman can't tell you. He was listening to the Spirit when he said, I can see that this journey is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and the cargo. But the Scripture says, but they wouldn't listen. And they said, come on, baby, let's sail on. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood among his shipmates and said, men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete you would have avoided this hardship and damage. <laughs> I love the word but. I really do. Because but, remember, is the eraser. Come on. Everything that's just happened to us, everything I just said here, there's a but. But now I urge you to have courage. Because there will be no loss of life among you but only the loss of the ship. Hallelujah! That's my friend. There are times I walk by a still body laying in the casket, and I'm reminded that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is saved. Only the ship was lost. That is all. Only the ship! Do you see the prophetic meaning of these scriptures, friends? Friends, our shopping cart feelings and emotions and our extravagantly wasteful decisions may bring about hardships and damage. They may even wreck our ship. But the man is always saved. Now, if that makes you want to go out in sin, 
you might want to have a little talk with Jesus. You might want to tell him all about your problems. He will hear your faintest cry, and he will answer by and by. Talk with Jesus about this, friends. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, because the covenant you're under, the covenant you're listening to is mixture. You've mixed the old covenant with the new covenant, and you know what it's done? It's taken you to Babylon. Babylon means confusion. I'm not saying we throw out the Old Testament. No way, friends. That would be like throwing out your baby pictures because you're no longer a baby. That's ridiculous. We have the Old Testament. We have the Old Covenant so that we can understand that the Father's heart has always been for us. It was just under a different covenant. It was a covenant that God had between man and man could never keep his covenant. But the covenant that God cut for us was Jesus on the cross. That was the sacrifice. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, we find these words. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven, right? It's a copy and shadow. It is not the real thing. And it's a little ambiguous. I've said it before. I can hold up a banana and you can see the shadow on the wall. But if you were only looking at the shadow, you could not tell if that was from a real banana or a plastic banana. There's no way for you to know. And so you can understand that the people under the old covenant, everything was a little fuzzy. They had to just go by rules and laws. They had to just march, 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 march. It wasn't just about this loving, close-knit relationship with God. David finally tapped into it. Absolutely. He finally found the heart of God. You know why? Probably because he was just with sheep out in the pasture, nobody else speaking into his heart. And he just said, hey, one day when maybe they were resting, playing his little harp or whatever it may be, he said, God, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. And he started singing unto the Lord and he found the heartbeat of God. And then it says, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. And this was the warning. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, Moses is not the first one that God gave a blueprint to. The first one was Noah. God told Noah exactly how long to build that ark, how wide, how high, how many animals to take on that ark, all of that stuff. Total blueprint. But he's telling Moses here, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. When you were visiting me on the mountain, this is the way I want my tabernacle built. Even under the old covenant, God gave specific instructions as to the dimensions of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Now, what do you think would have happened to the high priest if he would have tried to lengthen the tabernacle a little bit? 
you know, we make it a little roomier? What if he wanted to widen it a little bit? What if he wanted to raise the roof just a little bit? What if he wanted to add furnishings to the tabernacle? You know, like a picture or two on the wall. Maybe a few hanging plants. Maybe some extra lighting. What would have happened to him? I'll tell you what would have happened. He would have been struck dead. You want to know why? Because he dishonored God. In his own desire to add to God's finished work, what the high priest would have been doing if he would have been adding to God's blueprint is he would have been declaring that your blueprint is insufficient. The one that you've prescribed to me is insufficient. We need to add to it. Does this sound a little familiar, my friends? It's exactly the same thing that so many New Covenant believers do to this day. They redecorate the cross with their own tinsel of performance. We just think the cross would look better. Friends, the cross looks awesome. Don't put anything on it. Jesus was sufficient. Leave the blood on it. Don't power wash it. Leave the blood on it. The blood that saved you and saved me. They treat the covenant as a 50-50 partnership. They mix their perfume with Jesus' blood and dilute the gospel. Friends, I said it at the very beginning of this entire series. I said our embellishments added to Jesus' finished work of grace are nothing more than graffiti. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then it says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of good works. We're creative unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Continuing, it says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Come on, didn't we lay the foundation earlier that the covenant is based on oath-keeping promises? Here it's saying it again. Now watch what it says. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant. What is the first covenant? It's the same as the old covenant. It says, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant. No place would have been sought for another. I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on that scripture. So we have to ask the question. I'm going to sound like a broken record probably. What was wrong with the first covenant? Doesn't the scriptures tell us that it was holy? Yes. Doesn't it tell us it was righteous? Yes. Doesn't it tell us it was good? Yes. Doesn't it say it was perfect? Yes. It says all of those things. But it was insufficient to take away our sins once for all. It took the blood of Jesus to do that. It could cover your sins, but it couldn't take them away. That's why John the Baptist would stand in the Jordan River, the muddy Jordan River, waist deep with his camel hair coat. And when he looked up there for baptizing someone and he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had that revelation. 
And I think it came by the Spirit. I don't think Jesus and him, they were first cousins. I don't think they were just talking one day and said, by the way, I'm the Lamb of God. I'm coming to take away the sin of the world, just so you know, so it's not a surprise to you when it's out of the bag. No, it was by the Spirit, friends. It was by the Spirit that John the Baptist saw him. And I can only imagine the joy that flooded his heart when he said, Behold! Friends, I guarantee John the Baptist didn't stick his hands in his little camel hair coat pockets and go, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Now you just came to take away my thunder, Jesus. No! That's why when Jesus said, I want you to baptize me, John said, No, you got to baptize me! No! Doesn't work that way, John. Jesus came to serve, friends. Next scriptures. Look at these words now, friends. Please, let these fall to the sticky side of your heart this morning. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Do you see what I told you? Covenant was between God and the people and they did not remain faithful to his covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord, because that was the framework of the covenant. If you do what's right, I'm going to bless you. If you do what's wrong, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to allow the curses to come upon you. That was all part of the framework that they said, yeah, just give us that. Give us a bunch of rules. We can obey all those laws and rules. You know why? Because they were stuck in the mentality that Egypt ingrained into them. Work, 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 work. Listen to my orders. Obey my rules. That's all they knew. So they defaulted to what they already knew. And God is trying to lead them out, not of only Egypt, but he's trying to lead Egypt out of them. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. He said, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I feel the Holy Spirit trembling on the inside of me. There's something that he, I think, really wants you to see in these few scriptures here. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, this is the scripture. It's how the eighth chapter ends. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, come on, obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Friends, the new covenant is not like Baskin and Robbins. You know, let's just add another flavor to our existing menu. No, sir, no, ma'am. God scrapped the old covenant according to that verse right there. There is one flavor that Jesus serves. It's grace by faith. I want to ask you a question. It's a silly question. You ready for it? If you had a choice between two ice creams, your absolute favorite at no cost to you whatsoever, or your least favorite at exorbitant cost, which one would you choose? 
Isn't that a silly question? See, what the Father does is He draws pictures in my head so that I can really understand His points. I mean, you've got two reasons for taking the one. You've got two reasons for not going with the other one, don't you? It's not just one reason, it's two. It's my favorite and it's free. That's good news. It's my least favorite and it's exorbitant in cost. That's two good reasons I wouldn't want that. It's kind of a silly question, I know. But it perfectly showcases the choice that believers make between Old Covenant and New Covenant, the law, and grace. Under the law, you will work your fingers to the bone. You will pay exorbitantly with your own blood, sweat, and tears and still never quench your insatiable appetite. Under the law, you will continuously wrestle with condemnation and shopping sprees of the mind. Under the law, your conscience will repeatedly hit the eject button. Under the law, you'll keep adding water to your expensive perfume. Under the law, you'll swallow diamond rings, park your Mercedes-Benz in a hog pen, and you may even lose your ship. Under grace, come on, under grace, it is finished. It's the finished work of Christ. Under grace, it is finished, and you can rest in the oath-binding promises of God. There is no need for your blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant, already shed His. Under grace, we never lose our seat in heavenly places. Under grace, our fire insurance premiums have been canceled. There's no need to keep paying that premium. Under grace, our receipts fall into daddy's hands. Under grace, we are set free from the law. We are never punished by God for our sins. Friends, under grace, even in the midst of our deepest failures and blunders, bloopers, whatever you want to call them, we receive hugs and kisses from Papa, and we are lavish with His unconditional love. When a believer says no to the finished work of grace as their foundation of salvation, it's like paying an exorbitant cost for your least favorite ice cream. It is just simply nonsensical. Unfortunately, this is the power, though, of indoctrination, and most believers either fear changing course or have bought into the lie that they don't need to, that they're just fine the way they are. And for heaven, yes. For life here, no. Like the ship that the Apostle Paul was on, they are caught by the winds of old covenant indoctrination and swept out into a frightening sea and they don't know what to do out there. Friends, I want to draw your attention back to that 13th verse you're looking at. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. A couple, two, three weeks ago, I walked into the post office I go in there a lot. I know all the postal clerks by name. I have a good time when I go in the post office. I don't care if I'm the only one in there or if I'm 100 people in there. Like Pastor Felix, you will hear my voice. Amen? But I'm in there to have fun. I'm in there to lighten their load, right? Come on. And I just had a question. I just had a question on my mind. I walked up to the lady that waits on me a lot. And I said, I've got a question for you. I understand that a first-class stamp will mail up to one ounce in terms of a letter. 
I said, but what if my letter exceeded the weight and I had to put two first class stamps on there? And she's going along with this little question uh, thing here for a little bit. And I said, what would happen if it needed two stamps, if I put the one stamp on the letter and then I took the second stamp and I placed it right over top of the first stamp? And when I was saying that, her eyes began to squint. Her head began to shake back and forth. And this smile, like, are oh, you got to be the craziest man in the world? Asking a question like that came over her face. She said, no, it doesn't work that way. I said, it requires two stamps, right? She said, yes. I said, I put two stamps on the letter. No, it doesn't work that way. I said, that's all I need to know. You see, friends, Jesus did not come to lay the new covenant over top of the old covenant. He made the old covenant obsolete. If Jesus had laid the new covenant over the old covenant, then we would have reason to consider, we'd have reason to believe that maybe the old covenant is leeching its way through. But look at that 13th verse one more time. The first covenant, which is the old covenant, was made obsolete and then it says disappeared. Do you see that word disappeared up there? <laughs> Do you see this, friends? You know what it is? If you lay one stamp and you lay another one over it, that's mixture. And she said, it can't work that way. I said, has nobody ever asked you a question like that? She said, no, in all the years I've worked here, and she's about two years from retirement, she said, nobody's ever asked me a question like that. I said, leave it up to me. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, we find my closing scriptures. Now listen to these, friends. It says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? So let's just break this down in English, right? He's just basically saying if the first covenant could have made a man perfect, there would have been no need to bring anybody else because it's doing its job. It's working. He says, for when the priesthood is changed, come on, who's coming in the order of Melchizedek? That's Jesus, right? It says, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. See, this is the part. Maybe we haven't been in Hebrews. I don't This is the part we just haven't gotten yet. He said, when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Next scriptures. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Next scriptures. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the former regulation is set aside, look at these words now, because it was weak 
and useless. He's talking about the former regulation, the law, all of the law, everything that was under the law. That's the regulation. He said the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Now look at these words. Highlight them in your heart this morning. For the law made nothing perfect. I'm going to ask you a simple question. How perfect do you have to be to go to heaven? Perfect. You can't add anything to perfect or it wasn't perfect. You can't make perfect better, right? And it says, the law, let's talk about this law for a second. Good, holy, righteous, perfect. Yes, all of that. But it made nothing perfect. It was 10 bony fingers, 613 bony fingers in your face condemning you and just saying, look, you failed, you failed, you failed. Who wants to live under that oppression, friends? In fact, the Gentile world was never under the law. It was the Jewish population that was given the law. But somehow the church has preached it into the Gentile population. So we just grab a hold of what their covenant consisted of and believe it was ours as well. No, the Bible's not written to us. It's written for us. It's written for our edification. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced. Come on. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. See, that's what I'm talking about, friends. When you have this hope in your heart, this hope that sees Christ in all of his loveliness and all of his beauty, no condemning fingers pointing at you. You know what that does? It makes you crawl up on daddy's lap and just put your arms around his neck. It makes you bring him dandelions and the father receives them. And he says, what beautiful flowers you've brought me, child. Next scriptures. And it was not without an oath. Didn't I tell you those oath-keeping promises of God? And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. Not Jesus. But he became priest. That's Christ. With an oath, when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. That is the scripture, friends, that the inspiration of this message was birthed out of right there. Friends, under the new covenant, everything the Father possesses is ours. Nothing is off limits. There are no prenuptial agreements with Daddy. Our covenant has a 100% success rate. Why? Because of Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. In Christ, we have all sufficiency. A sufficiency that by one sacrifice has made us perfect forever. That is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. In Christ, there are no reject buttons or eject seats. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places through the oath-binding promises of the Father's unconditional love and graces. A love that safeguards our name in the Lamb's book of life. Everything that the Father has belongs to His children. There are going to be times, come on, be honest with me, come on. There are going to be times when our feelings and our emotions 
take us on shopping sprees that are extravagantly wasteful. Times when we grab hold of things that are costly and needless. Times when we peruse the clothing rack, you know, searching for that garment to kind of dress up our walk a little bit. There's times when we swallow a necklace and live reckless. It is in these times that we must remind ourselves that we were designed, we were destined, we were created and purposed for such a time as this to hear the voice of God and do His will, whatever it is. We were made to live outside of the pig pen. So let me ask you a question. What do we do? What do we do when we fall into the pig pen? Well, we pick ourselves up and we go to the Father, the one who will greet us with hugs and kisses and warm embrace. There is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. Therefore, the law cannot punish us. Christ did this by carrying the load and by being punished in our place instead of us. It was Jesus who purchased us from the penalty of sin. The receipts from our careless shopping spree have all been forgiven. There is no need for blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant, has already shed his. Friends, our embellishments added to Jesus' finished work of grace are no more than graffiti. It is one postage stamp on top of the other. It adds no value to our salvation. We are His through the new covenant of grace by faith alone. Perfection? What about that perfection, Mark? Well, it could not be obtained through the Levitical priesthood or through the law. The scriptures just told us that. Therefore, Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, became our high priest. And with the change of the priesthood, the law was changed also. Through Christ, we were given the gift of an indestructible life. Believers do not move from life to death. They move from life to even more life. That's how it works, friends. We've already died with Christ. We'll never die again. Physical body, the ship, yes, but the spirit man goes from life to life everlasting. Friends, there is no need to lengthen or widen or to raise the roof on our salvation. There is no need to hang pictures, plants, and lights. We are thoroughly and completely furnished in Christ. There is no need to redecorate the cross with our own tinsel of performance. The cross itself was the Father's hugs and kisses and warm embrace for all humanity. My encouragement to you is this. Let go. Let go of the old covenant and all of its practices. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant, has sufficiently satisfied our hearts with good things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Father, I thank you for this word today. Such a deep truth made so simple. Father, it really is. It's like when you give us these lenses to look through, the lenses of the finished work of grace, it helps us to see. 
It helps us not just to see our way through life, but it helps us to see life, which is Christ. I thank you, Father, that because of the covenant that we're under right now, the covenant of grace, this covenant doesn't keep the Father at a distance from us. It allows us to crawl right up in Papa's lap, a place I love to be, with my arms around his neck, looking up into his matchless, beautiful eyes, and just saying, Daddy, can we just hold each other for a while? There doesn't even have to be words. Let's just enjoy each other's presence. Father, I thank you so much that as this word begins to find its way across the seas, across the nations, to other countries, and into the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl, draw them out of the shadows. The shadows are not the substance. We want the substance, and that substance is Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you I thank you that it truly is finished. Jesus shed his blood once for all. And in the shedding of his blood, it made us perfect once for all. Perfect in action? No. Do we still put things in the shopping cart of our mind and take a journey? Yes, we do. But I thank you, Father, that all is forgiven under the covenant of your beautiful grace. We have one person to thank for that. It is Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.